Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. I'm Robin. And I'm Savannah. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. On this week's session, we're going to be talking about uh, more Ukraine stuff. But before we get there, I just wanted to say we have officially done our mic check this time. So the audio should be a little bit better. And I wanted to apologize for last week's episode. Um, Did the best I could for the sound on that. But sometimes gremlins enter the system and we miss them. So uh, but we should have that sorted this time around. So thank you. Hey, on the day that you're hearing this, March 14, 2022, it has been 18 days since Vladimir Putin directed the Russian army to invade Ukraine. This invasion has had devastating consequences for the people of Ukraine, which you can read about or watch or listen to on pretty much any media channel that exists right now. It is necessary for the world to see, but it can also be really overwhelming for those of us who don't need another picture of just how ugly humanity can be which is why we're trying to contribute to the coverage by adding context to the headlines. This invasion has also all but collapsed the Russian economy and sent shockwaves through other economies worldwide, um, in no small part because of sanctions that have been levied against Russia by many other countries and organizations uh, across the globe. Um, In many cases, imposing sanctions seems to be the first response When one world government makes decisions that are not, shall we say, supported by other world governments um, because they've and because rather they've been such a key response uh, during this conflict, we wanted to make sure that we and by extension, you have a foundational understanding of what they really are, how they impact the countries that are sanctioned and the countries that impose them and whether or not they produce the desired results. So what exactly are sanctions? Um, Sanctions can take so many forms that it's no wonder we interpret the idea as this all-encompassing concept that's both vague and ominous. It also doesn't help that the word sanction has two sort of antagonistic definitions. On the one hand, a sanction is a threatened penalty for disobeying a law or a rule. And then on the other hand, it means official permission or approval for an action. When an action is sanctioned, it means that it received a blessing from whatever authority reserves the right to give authorization. When you withdraw money from the bank, you're sanctioning that action. Obviously, this is not the point that we care most about here. I just, I'm a word nerd, and I thought it was an interesting point that that word can have almost two opposite connotations. The definition that we care about for this episode is the threatened penalty. And whoa, are there a lot of them. Economic sanctions, diplomatic sanctions, military, sports, environmental. For the purposes of this episode, we're primarily focusing on economic sanctions, but there may be some mentions of the others in there. A fuller definition of sanctions, according to DowJones.com, expands on what exactly the word means in this conversation. Punitive and deterrent actions taken by one government or multilateral body, such as the UN, against another country, entity, or individual. Sanctions can take a variety of forms, including travel bans, asset freezes, arms embargoes, capital restraints, foreign aid reductions, and trade restrictions. Sanctions are what nations and international groups use to punish other nations and international groups who aren't playing nicely in the global arena without the use of armed force. 
Sanctions can be used in response to big political moves like an invasion of a globally recognized country, but they can also be imposed in a more economic focus situations like trade wars in the form of tariffs, which are like extra taxes on goods coming into a country to be sold. Like we said a minute ago, sanctions come in many forms. For the most part, they do pretty much what their name says, but we will give you a brief rundown of the most common types before we keep going. Uh, One way that sanctions can be imposed is through travel bans, restrictions on who can travel to or from the country that's being coerced. Official travel bans Official travel ban sanctions are placed by countries and entities like the United Nations Security Council against individuals, groups, undertakings, and entities to prevent freedom of movement for the listed uh, people and to promote peace. So think of the post 9-11 days and being on the do not fly list. In an all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares comparison. Um, not all travel bans are sanctions. Trump imposed a travel ban on multiple countries during COVID-19 to prevent the spread of the virus, but those travel bans were not punitive. Even if it may have felt like it, and even if it had economic impacts on those countries, Also, the U.S. State Department provides suggestions on who should travel where, but those are also not sanctions, as it is not necessarily forbidden to travel to those countries. The State Department would just prefer that you don't. So one of the key components of a sanction is, therefore, intent behind the sanction. Mm -hmm. Asset freezes completely restrict the use of funds by individuals, businesses, and groups. The UN allows exemptions in the form of basic expenses and extraordinary expenses, but even these have to be approved and tracked by the specific sanctions committee. Arms embargoes restrict or cut off the supply of weapons or dual-use items, items that are not weapons but can be used as weapons. Um, Capital restraints limit or prevent investment capital from exiting a country. And foreign aid reductions limit the amount or types of aid coming into a country that is being sanctioned. And trade restrictions are probably the most visible of the sanctions we're going to talk about this episode because they control what comes into or goes out of a country. Um, Sometimes the restriction is as large as an entire export category, like um, oil, just off the top of my head. Other times the restriction is on smaller, seemingly insignificant items um, like diamonds, which are insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Right. One of the biggest trade restrictions, restriction sanctions I can think of is the Cuban cigar embargo, which prevented Cubans from being sold in America. This meant I needed to travel to Canada to smoke a Cuban, and I felt like I was breaking the law the entire time. I wasn't. (laughs) Canada specifically sells Cubans close to the border because they know Americans will travel over to buy them. Why were Cuban cigars sanctioned in the U.S.? Because the profits went straight into Fidel Castro's pockets, and it turns out America isn't a fan of Fidel's ideologies. I mean, what? Gasp. What? I'm I thought, I thought we were best friends with Fidel. Yeah. I thought he came over on Sundays and we watched football and had barbecues together at the White House. Is he still I mean, alive? Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I, think I know he doesn't rule Cuba anymore <laughs> for like I a couple he years. Died. <laughs> he died I knew too. that one. I'm pretty sure he did. I think it's Raul at the moment who yeah. is uh, who's hanging out in uh, Havana. Yeah. So, um, right <laughs> off track. Bunny so, trails. Focus. Yeah, we um, also. So can. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, 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 no. I just, I'm just, I was just going to reiterate. We're talking about the list of sanctions right now for people who. Uh, like me, can't follow a verbal list without it being explicitly stated. Yes. Um, so we're talking about, uh, we've mentioned so far, um, uh, travel bans, uh, we've asset freezes, uh, arms embargoes, foreign aid reductions, capital restraint limits, and, uh, and trade restrictions in yes. general. So. We also do need to mention that not all economic punishments count as official sanctions. For example, some of the punishments against Russia that have been imposed by groups like uh, the National Hockey League or oil giants BP and Shell are not considered state or UN sanctions, but they are definitely punitive actions designed to coerce Russia into changing its behavior. 
These decisions will have similar effects as sanctions imposed by political organizations, but they are not official political sanctions. Right. Can uh, one of the one of the hard hitting, harder hitting sanctions um, actually uh, against Russia right now has actually come from FIFA um, in in banning Russian players from and uh, from competing in FIFA, the soccer uh, organization, uh, UEFA also banned Russian players. And, um, that would be like, I don't know, similar to saying like the Cowboys can't play in the NFL. Right. Like it's a big I wish deal. They wouldn't. I mean, yeah. well, do they really play anyway? They kind of just the past lose. couple of years. They've been kicking it up. Uh, Bunny trails <laughs> back to sanctions. Hmm. Dak who? Um, so can punishments be handed out to, can punishments that are handed out to individuals be considered sanctions themselves? Um, and can sanctions be handed out by groups that aren't inherently political? Well, in a world market, isn't it all political? Hitler wasn't accepted into art school twice. He states in Mein Kampf that his anti-Semitism began during this period of rejection. Will World Taekwondo stripping his black belt title be Putin's own version of art school rejection that causes the next world war? No, because Hitler invaded Poland after his art school rejection and Putin invaded Ukraine before his personal sanction of no longer holding the title of black belt. But rejection still stings the old bride. Sure does. Yeah, that one feels like really specific. <laughs> it seems, it seems real targeted. Like, it seems real like intentional. Just as a note, as a former Taekwondo, uh, uh, I was waiting doer. for that. I was oh, waiting gross. for that to come out. When I yeah. saw that written in there, I was like, "This is where we're going." I didn't write that. That was all Savannah. Um, no, I, yeah, but I, no. I knew we were going here. Oh yeah, I'm just saying. Like black belt is kind of where you begin to be a student in yeah. Taekwondo. Everything up until that point is like, oh, I'm learning fundamentals. And then you get to black belt and you're like, okay, I know enough of the fundamentals to actually learn how to do this. Right. So they're basically like, yeah, you ain't even good enough to be a student. Yeah. You don't count. Mm-hmm. You don't count. Which honestly, I've always had a lot of questions about Putin's um, alleged mastery of various martial arts. Yeah. Just like. He can ride a horse. That's not a martial art. I don't but think like, that's a martial yeah. art. <laughs> it's not a martial art. <laughs> I, mean, I guess if you're in the cavalry, you could yeah. that could be considered a martial art. But yeah, it feels it feels like a, a variation, like a, a maybe riff a, on a theme. an offshoot. Yeah, yeah. Okay. mounted combat. Yeah, exactly. He gets a back an, uh, a bonus to his to attacks sanction. as he uh, rides uh, <laughs> at least ten feet before making his attack. He gets a plus but, two to his deck saves if he's riding his horse. Oh, such inside baseballs right now. And D and D, right? Isn't that a Dungeons and Dragons? Reference? Oh, this is very much D and D. Yeah, Robin and I are Nerds. make we're competing to out nerd each other. Uh, yeah. Moving on. I'm okay, so sorry, as I everybody. stare at my box of Dungeons and Dragons nerds, the candy like it's Dungeons and Dragons nerds. Um, but the point being here that the aforementioned examples of World Taekwondo and gas companies are not sanctions in the dictionary sense of the term, in the, ter- the sense that we were talking about earlier. But some of the punitive measures that are set by private companies, specifically BP and Shell, have impacts that are very real and equally as impactful as the official sanctions being imposed by groups like the European Union and the United States. Any private entity can provide punitive measures against a nation or a group. But official sanctions are imposed by countries and government institutes and given to individuals, groups, businesses, and nations who need a little bit of pressure applied. You may actually hear in all of this conversation about sanctions against Russian oligarchs, right? These are individual people whose behavior and especially their financial behavior is contributing to this overall conflict. And they are being individually sanctioned by state and uh, multilateral organizations. To put it bluntly, it seems like the nations, companies, individuals, athletic organizations, and everyone but Belarus, Syria, Eritrea, and North Korea are distancing themselves from Russia in every way possible. With a handful of other countries, hi China, giving more lukewarm reactions that don't exactly inspire confidence in their stance. So that brings us to the question, what is being levied against Russia right now and by whom? 
Um, the United States has imposed economic sanctions against Russia since its invasion of Crimea and the abuse of power against Ukraine in 2014. So that means that the measures announced by the Biden administration in the last few weeks are additions to what was already in place. All right. So currently, the United States um, is targeting sanctions against Russian companies, uh, the military complex, their oil inputs, Russian ships, their banking, oligarchs, which is probably hitting them the most, um, airlines, Russian banks. And this is a, a list that you can find in our show notes. We'll send you the link and uh, you can check it out and see all the de different details for when the sanctions were imposed and who is actually ex um, participating in them against Russia. The U.S. Department of Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS, has sanctioned specific ex export controls for 91 entities based on their involvement in contributions to or other support of Russian security practice services, military defense sectors, and military and or defense research and development efforts. So these entities are located majority in Russia. Um, some are in the United Kingdom, Estonia, and Spain, Malta, Kazakhstan, Latvia, Belize, Singapore, and Slovakia. Um, so there are 96 uh, total entities, but some operate in multiple countries. So if you add up all the numbers, it would still not be 96. And of course, the United States is not alone in imposing sanctions on Russia. Um, Canada and the UK and the European Union are also imposing sanctions on Russian oligarchs, uh, freezing their assets, restricting travel. We've got um, New Zealand, which has imposed sanctions on Russian ships, banning them from their ports. Um, Italy also sanctioning oligarchs. Switzerland has actually gotten into the mix too, um, which is yeah, huge. A big that's, deal. that's actually big a really deal. big deal um, because, well, if you know much about world history, you know that Switzerland prides itself on its neutral stance when it comes to conflict, especially military conflict. So the fact that they're stepping in and imposing sanctions themselves says a lot. They are imposing sanctions on Russian banks, Russian companies, the Russian military complex, and especially the Russian Central Bank. You can no longer say, I'm going to be Switzerland in this disagreement. Yeah, not in that? this one. Yeah, what does that in mean? In a lot now? of them you can, but not in this one. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think it's like I'm going to be hungry in this situation or Turkey. I can't. There are some people who are trying to remain neutral. Yeah. I think hungry. Uh, and like this is one of those situations where neutrality is not, I think, a morally supportable position to take. Yeah. Right. I mean, it seems to me that the, the position on the ground is fairly clear cut. One country invaded another under false pretenses and has been doing incredible things like bombing maternity wards. And I think nine hospitals have been blown up by Russia at this point. And, uh, oh yeah, threatening nuclear reactors and forcing the scientists there to work at gunpoint after they do take them over. Um, they killed a journalist uh, as of the time we recorded this. Uh, so great stuff, great stuff. Yeah. Uh, I don't think being neutral here is gonna, it's not gonna look good. Yeah. Um, a, a conversation for a different time, maybe. Um, there are other punitive measures being taken by private entities, which we mentioned uh, earlier. Just a short list of those, like Nestle, Heineken, Starbucks, McDonald's has withdrawn from Russia, which is a big deal. It's had a huge psychological impact on Russian citizens. Uh, there's been uh, like discussion about how weird it is to not be able to go get... A Big Mac, you know, it's a staple in America, but it's a staple all around the world, too. So imagine if you walk down the street and that McDonald's is shuttered. A staple? Um, it's just weird. It's a staple brand. Okay. A I'm, staple. I'm not going to say it's like a food staple. <laughs> then like, clarify that. It shouldn't be a food staple. Yeah, yeah, it's a staple brand. It's it's just weird. It's something that has always existed for people, um, at least under a certain age. Um but uh, some huge companies as well. I'm sure everybody is familiar with uh, Apple. Uh, they've pulled out their uh, Apple Pay. They've started, stopped selling products there, which has had uh, incredible negative impacts. Netflix is not launching. Uh, it suspended its service there. Um, even TikTok 
<laughs> which has suspended <laughs> live streaming uh, and uploading of videos um, in its Russian on its Russian platform, um, which is crazy. I want to know who in TikTok made that choice because ByteDance is a is a Chinese company. So if TikTok China made that call, then interesting tip of the cards maybe. Yeah. Um, other sports industries, Formula One has withdrawn. Huge deal. Um, they won't let Russians race after uh, ending their contract with the uh, Russian Grand Prix promoter. Um, I, the, the list goes on. I'm, I'm like, the more I read it, the more excited in not the like happy way, but like in the interested way I get mm -hmm. about it. Like it stimulates my ADHD brain and I want to think about the implications of these individual companies doing things more, but yeah. uh, we don't have time to, to have an entire episode based on that. No. Uh, again, that link will be in our show notes if you want to to go through the the list and see you know which companies are doing what. Um, some surprising, uh, I guess, silver lining, good news. You know that yeah. companies are taking a, a moral stance for once. Um, which I do appreciate. Yeah, I mean, it, and we'll definitely get to like, um, we have a whole section on what the impact is, but it things like Netflix and TikTok withdrawing from Russia, we think about the economic impact that it has, but also that's a great way for us to segue into the intention of sanctions because it also makes the Russian people, the people who uh, probably did not make the decision to invade Ukraine at this point, pretty uncomfortable, takes away a lot of their creature comforts. Um, and that, that leads in directly to why. Why do we do sanctions in the first place? I did want to mention, because the, there had been news cycles on something that it was supposedly sanctioned, and that came out to be false. Um, Pornhub was uh, was <laughs> told that they you couldn't access Pornhub from Russia. Um, that is false. You can. You could test that by going on a VPN and uh, trying to access Pornhub. So. Um, that is not on a uh, individual company or website sanctions that is still happening. So, um, fun fact, no ethical conflict, free pornography for you guys. Right. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> what are the intentions of sanction regimes? Sanctions regime. Wow. What are the intentions of sanctions regimes? Um, the intended goal of sanctions is to get a country, group, business, or individual to stop doing something that has been deemed unacceptable, both in the short term and as an overall practice or policy. The United States doesn't offer blanket goals and objectives outlined for their sanctions policy, but the United Nations explicitly states their sanctions are to support peaceful transitions, deter non-constitutional changes, constrain terrorism, protect human rights, and promote non-proliferation. In the most immediate sense, sanctions stop bad behavior from occurring by quickly restricting the movement of money, goods, weapons, or persons. This short-term goal can be reached fairly quickly with enough non-military enforcement through the declaration of ended trade agreements, restrictions, and border checkpoints. But sanctions on the scale that make headlines, and the ones that we're talking about today, often have bigger picture intentions. They're trying to change the way a government works or applying pressure to stop or start something on a large scale, like nuclear proliferation. Often these result in long-term sanctions regimes that continue pressure on the recipients with the goal of affecting change, leaving policymakers and humanitarian aid workers and researchers wondering if the pressure is enough to cause long-term changes in behavior. Most organizations that levy sanctions acknowledge that they can't be the only front in the war for peace. Okay, they don't say war for peace, but there is an admittance that a comprehensive peacekeeping, peace building, and peacemaking strategy need to accompany the pressure that sanctions provide. The UN specifically says, contrary to the assumption that sanctions are punitive, Many regimes are designed to support governments and regions working towards peaceful transition. So a long story short, sanctions exist to create a very uncomfortable situation <laughs> intended to manipulate someone or a group of someones into doing something. Yeah. And 
the United States has been using economic manipulation as a vital component of diplomatic policy since its relative infancy. In 1807, the United States attempted to restrict trade with the United Kingdom and Napoleonic France as a consequence for their harassment of U.S. ships. And, as expected, that embargo had some effect on the economies of those countries, legitimizing the concept and essentially turning it into our go-to non-military flex. But it also had a very significant negative impact on the American economy, proving that the consequences of sanctions go beyond the expected. It could be argued that they even spark already strained persons uh, into a willingness to go to actual war with the country that imposes the sanctions, right? So you have made things hard and I already was a little iffy on our relationship and now you're actively antagonizing me. I'm just going to punch you. Um, America did just that as a colony of Britain. <laughs> Uh, when Britain wanted to impose taxes and tariffs and economic sanctions on the best drink that there is. Beer? Nope. Tea. This is chocolate tea, which is a weird thing, but it exists. What? Are you mm -hmm. joking? Oh, I'm is, dead it the, serious. is it the Yogi Mayan Cocoa Spice? No, no. It's, um, it's literally roasted and ground cocoa. Oh, and yeah. Kind of like you would, would do with coffee, um, but it's, uh, it's more mm -hmm. chocolatey. I have some of so, that in my yeah. coffee tin right now. It's very good. Yeah. It took me a second to adjust. Creo brew you know, it is. You kind of want like hot chocolate, but uh, I want but, to sanction mm -hmm. you drinking the hot tea. No, mm -hmm. you can't. No, it's it. so good. It's so it's good. It's so good. And if you've given up it. caffeinated coffee, like certain members in blue shirts on this stream, um, then you enjoy the kind of sort of energy kick that you get from brewed. Yeah. cocoa without the caffeine they also have like different roasts so you can get like a light Korea. roast or a dark roast i think i have like mm -hmm. the equivalent of a colombian roast yeah i've got a light roast it was okay i like the darker roast a little heavier flavor this yeah this advertising space available to be paid for by creo but if you don't i'm gonna bleep that out so yeah anyway, the point here the whole point here <laughs> is that sanctions are hardly cost-free. Uh, while they may create some coercion by placing restrictions on the economic movements of those against whom they're levied, they can also strain relationships with allies, antagonize adversaries, and impose economic hardship on innocent civilians. Um, the sanctions imposed by governments and organizations in the not-so-distant past took a blanket or comprehensive approach. These sweeping policies very often harmed non-political bystanders as often as they impacted their intended state actor targets. New technological developments have led to new smart sanctions or designer sanctions policies that utilize international financial markets and are intended to cause less inadvertent harm to civilians. Targeted financial sanctions were supposed to reduce the suffering associated with comprehensive trade embargoes, following the logic that going after banking systems and assets held by bad actors would spare the general population. But, again, because those sanctions directly impact financial markets, their reach and their effects can often be very difficult to predict. And still, impacts are felt by those who aren't involved in the decision-making processes that result in the imposition or lifting of sanctions. In practice, too, most financial measures have been layered on top of existing trade sanctions, damaging the overall economies of targeted countries even more, because that's what they need. Um, one source we read said, international relations scholars do not agree on a lot, but the literature, the literature on sanctions is unanimous on the harm these measures inflict on populations in targeted countries. Even financial sanctions are likely to trigger repression, corruption, and backsliding on human development indicators. The effects of economic sanctions on bystander populations have been well studied by public health specialists and aid organizations. To use the words of Harvard researcher Stephen Marks, they often constitute violations of economic, social, and cultural human rights. Countries that are heavily sanctioned can experience economic and infrastructure collapse caused by increased unemployment, declining GNP, capital flight, lost foreign investments, and a general inability to fund reconstruction. 
For example, during the Gulf War in 1991, Iraq's infrastructure was devastated by bombing raids and military campaigns. Roads were bombed out, electrical generators were destroyed, and water treatment plants were completely unusable. Reports on the conditions of the country ranged from it being reduced to pre-industrial status to being apocalyptic. Following the war, the United States and its allies also imposed a sanctions regime on the country. Iraq's GDP dropped from $66 billion to $11 billion. And while we've talked about how big those numbers can be, they get much smaller when you're trying to divide that out by 18 million people. That's a GDP of roughly $611 per capita. For comparison, in 1991, the United States GDP per capita was $24,342. That is yes. a pretty significant difference, to say the least. Yeah. What, with a, with a non-existent means of national income, sanctions limiting foreign trade and investment and no infrastructure to support a meaningful workforce, the country remained in a state of complete disrepair for 13 years despite efforts to mitigate the sanctions' impact on the individual. In 1995, the UN Security Council and Iraq agreed to a program that allowed Iraq to sell a limited amount of oil and use the income to buy food and other humanitarian goods and pay reparations to Kuwait. Over the course of the sanctions regime, the total amount of food and humanitarian goods Iraq was allowed to import under the Oil for Food program came to about $204 annually, less than half the per capita income of the poorest countries in the world at the time. And yes, Hussein skimmed some off the top for his own regime as well, about $2 billion over the course of eight years. $2 billion. I feel like I really need to drive home how much money he was taking per year Yeah. to communicate that. Yeah. $2 billion over eight years. That's an insane amount of money that could have been going to his people that would have made a massive, massive difference in their lives. Right. And with the, the intention of these economic sanctions being to, uh, to make it uncomfortable and put pressure on Hussein and his regime to change things because the state that his people were in, um, clearly he was not feeling the pain. Yeah. Well, the old, uh, maxim does hold true that, uh, poop flows downhill, if yeah. you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this case, the poop was, you know, struggling <laughs> to live and get food. And uh, that definitely all got passed down. Trickle down economics worked, folks. Right. Uh, in the worst possible way. Uh, so yeah, because basically, if there's one thing, if there's one thing that we can count on from a totalitarian dictator, it's that they will prioritize their own benefit over the benefit of their subjects. Yeah. Um, we've only seen that play out dozens of times. Everywhere. There is also significant evidence that sanctions regimes can contribute to deteriorating public health, as evidenced by high child mortality rates, low vaccination rates, and malnu malnutrition. For example, look at Haiti from 1991 to 1994. On December 16th, 1990, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was elected as president of Haiti by 67% of Haitian voters. He took office on the 7th of February in 1991. There were no questions about the authenticity of the results. The validity of the election was upheld by the United Nations, the Organization of American States, and the Caribbean community. Before Aristide's election, Haiti had long been dominated by the dictatorships of Francois Duvalier, and when Francois, did I, is that how you pronounce it's that? It's Duvalier, I think. You know what? Y'all just put all of the words that are hard to pronounce Dude, in my sections. French is the worst. French is the worst. While y'all were talking. I have a friend here that is going to hate hearing that. But listen, if you cut off half the letters in a word and then mock people for how they read it, that's on you, France. So many vowels, France. Y'all were up there talking about Hussein and I was legit on howtopronounce.com to try to figure out how to not mess up the first yeah. one. And I didn't even see the second one, so I'm <laughs> not prepared. Not, yeah. yeah, Francois Duvalier and um, Jean-Claude Duvalier. <laughs> okay. So. 
Before Aristide's election, Haiti had long been dominated by the dictatorships of Francois de Valier, and when Francois finally bit it, his son, Jean-Claude de Valier. At the end of the end of Jean-Claude's reign was followed by five years of political instability under five different regimes. The election of Aristide's of Aristi was supposed to mark the beginning of an, an era of democratic, economic, and social progress. So, of course, you know, all that fell apart. On, uh, on September 30th, 1991, President Aristide was overthrown in a coup d'etat headed by Lieutenant General Raoul Cedras and forced into exile. Sanctions in the form of a trade embargo were levied almost immediately, as in October 1991. And... In an attempt to, these were in an attempt to restore Aristide to the presidency. Uh, but the new military regime resisted these sanctions for more than three years. By the end of three years, there was, well, mostly chaos when it came to Haitian uh, sanctions. Yeah. The European community could not agree on what exactly to embargo and continued shipping goods to Haiti. Sporadic oil shipments, some at first linked to the Organization of American States members, then from Europe, kept the country fueled. But the embargo did have an obvious and significant effect on one group, Haiti's already impoverished population. The situation after the coup deteriorated from extreme poverty to a state of virtual famine in some parts of the country. Not only did income decline, unemployment shot up. With less cash came less ability to purchase nutritious foods, leading to poorer nutrition and rising mortality in toddlers. The stress and lack of assets contributed to an overall decrease in attention to children's well-being and education and the overall breakdown of families. Haitians, especially poor Haitians, switched to survival mode, changing their diets, their spending habits, consolidating households, selling domestic goods, there were fewer formal marriages in, former, in favor of marriage-like arrangements. There was decreased school attendance and making children essentially into indentured servants. To summarize, these sanctions resulted in extensive violation of Haitians' human rights. And as is always the case in these situations, these violations impacted the most disadvantaged in the community the hardest. But, as it is with everything having to do with global conflict, the causes and effects of these violations are very difficult to untangle. One group of researchers looking into the connection between sanctions and human rights issues have identified two probable indirect links between the two. The first link is the decreased capacity of a sanctioned government to protect against human rights violations. This includes what we were just talking about with Iraq and Haiti, Uh, But it also includes a reduced capacity for oversight of security agents, which can lead to human rights violations having to do with violence. The second link involves an increase in dissent. One of the intentions of sanctions is to cause dissent that motivates bad actors to change their behavior. You don't want to lose your power. The people are the ones who have the power to strip you of your power, even in a dictatorship. That's what color revolutions are all about. Um, So you will therefore make changes to keep the people happy and to keep them from rising up because ultimately the people in a government or in any given country outnumber the government actors in that country. But in some circumstances, um, the response to that unrest is not capitulation. It's increased pressure on the dissenters, like mass arrests of protesters in Moscow. Yeah. Just again, off the top of my head, a woman got arrested yesterday uh, at a protest for holding up a sheet of paper. It had no writing on it. It was just a blank sheet of like poster board. She was holding it up and it's on film. Two cops walk her off. So... Not to make light of the situation whatsoever, but I just see that as her making a meme template. Like it's a blank sheet, so anything can be written on it. And that can be used, like maybe Russia thought that that could be used. It's just allowing something to be created whenever you hold up a poster like that. And it can make Russians seem like they can say anything. And if the internet gets a hold of that, it's going to look bad. So I can see why Russia would do it. But It's still, uh, I mean, even if that were the the logic behind it, still a, a huge violation silly that that woman's rights and not to mention uh uh 
commentary on freedom of speech. Like clearly Russia doesn't have that as demonstrated. Um, but the whole point of freedom of speech is that if somebody is saying something that the government doesn't like, the government has to just take it. Uh, we can't we can't ignore the stacking effects too of long term sanctions, or even sanctions combined with unforeseeable global events like natural disasters or crashing commodities markets. <laughs> when the Obama administration and the European Union imposed sanctions against Putin in 2014 for his support of separatists in e Eastern Ukraine and Russia's annexation of Crimea, they did so moderately. Their policies were having an effect, but the process was slow. But then in December 2014, a sudden drop in oil prices combined with the effects of the sanctions contributed to the near collapse of the ruble and effectively ended foreign investment into Russia. That was not something that they could have foreseen. But that compounding effect, well, it almost leveled the Russian economy, which is kind of what we're seeing right now. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's well and thoroughly leveled, I think, as far as an economy can be without yeah. disappearing. One impact we discovered through this research was the tendency of sanctions to affect academic research and higher education. Modern academia has, academia has become reliant on an international network of collaborators, online information, equipment suppliers, and international travel. The lines between public, private, state-initiated, and purely academic research have become increasingly blurry. Multinational organizations like the EU, the UN, and the World Bank are embracing concepts of knowledge-based econo economic development that require close interaction with academia. When sanctions are imposed on a country, their impacts on academic research and higher education can be pretty far-reaching. Certainly, financial sanctions may impact a researcher's ability to purchase necessary equipment, sure, but again, the consequences are more than just monetary. Researchers' access to online information may be, re may be restricted if the, if the company that hosts the data is based in a country that is imposing sanctions. Um, their ability to travel and connect with other researchers could also be restricted if they're not allowed to enter these other countries. Some researchers may even have their submissions to academic publications rejected because of sanctions policies imposed by the publisher's government. In 2019, a group of researchers published a study analyzing the effects of long-term sanctions on academic research and recognition in Sudan. Sudan had been the subject of a long-running system of comprehensive sanctions by the United States, the United Kingdom, and the United Nations. They surveyed full and part-time academics working at Sudanese academic institutions, postgraduate students, and individuals working in governmental or commercial institutions involved in research activity. And while it's a very small sample size, it's really interesting to note that 98.7% of the 328 respondents believe that international sanctions have impacted their ability to function as an academic researcher. Their responses indicated that they believe their access to laboratory equipment, access to information and communications technology, access to data, and access to peer-reviewed publications was the most impacted. And lest we believe that sanctions only impact those in countries against which, which they're levied, has anyone filled up their gas tank today? <laughs> <laughs> These policies also impact the economies of countries all over the globe. Now, it's not always a direct line. In the case of, of the United States, uh, gas prices, for example, uh, sanctions against Russia, plus the withdrawal of many major oil companies from the country, have essentially startled the oil market and caused a jump in prices. And if that sounds complicated to you, we have a whole episode that explores why we pay what we do for gas. And we have an update to our inflation and gas prices episode coming next week. Um, but... Reducing trade and exports and reducing another country's ability to contribute to the global economy can throw things off, even for folks who aren't involved. In today's global economy, a disruption in one country has ripple effects around the globe. So that brings us to the biggest question of all of them. If sanctions are the world's go-to non-military consequence... Do they actually work? Do they do what they're supposed to do? Well, there are many folks who will tell you that they do. Generally, it's the people who make the decisions to impose them. Um, 
But remember that the intentions of sanctioned regimes generally include controlling immediate circumstances. They want to stop a thing from happening right now. Freezing assets and controlling people has a tendency to do that. But we also have to remember that sanctions policies can include a longer-term diplomatic goal, like overall policy or regime change, and the evidence for success in those more complex situations does not appear to be very encouraging. One story that many proponents of international sanction regimes love to tell is how these policies helped end apartheid in South Africa. And indeed, an internationally enforced embargo contributed to the breakdown of the ruling bloc and empowered more progressive political and business groups working to end that segregation. But we can't tell that story without also talking about Myanmar, where sanctions actually seemed to strengthen those in power because they were able to pass the cost on to non-state groups. The reality of the situation is that sanctions are often, perhaps always, employed as part of an overall package of factors that may lead an individual or nation in one direction or another. But untangling the individual impact of any set of sanctions is likely not going to be an easy thing to do if it's even possible at all. As Adam Roberts, research fellow at Oxford, said, there are very few cases where you can definitely identify sanctions as having had a success, except sometimes in combination with other factors. One of the primary problems, as we saw in Haiti, uh, is that sanctions have to be applied evenly to work. Some actors will ignore sanctions, while others will undercut them, such as when China became one of Iran's biggest trading partners after the U.S. sanctioned Iran in 2010. It's fine to say, we're not going to sell you X, but it doesn't do much if other people can sell X to the intended target. So why then do we put so much stock in them? The reliance on economic sanctions would make it appear that sanctions are universally proven to be effective, but the fact remains that we simply don't know. A 2014 study relying on a data set maintained by the University of North Carolina found that at best, sanctions lead to concessions between one-third and one-half of the time. Later, a 2019 Government Accountability Office study came to the conclusion that not even the federal government was certain when sanctions were working. Further, there seems to be no effort to find out. According to that GAO study, officials at the Treasury, State, and Commerce Departments stated they do not conduct agency assessments of the effectiveness of sanctions in achieving broader U.S. policy goals. Insane. Some studies indicate that sanctions fail in as many as 95% of cases, while other older studies have shown that sanctions continue to decrease bilateral trade by 90% even years after the sanctions have been lifted. It could be that sanctions have gained efficacy over the years. The majority of the sanctions applied in Russia target individuals more than institutions, and even the institutional sanctions, like removing Russia from the SWIFT swift banking system, have carve-outs for certain industries to avoid impacting the general population too much. These so-called smart sanctions are targeted punishments meant to hit the decision makers where it hurts and leave the general population relatively unscathed. In addition to the economic sanctions targeting the Russian financial system, Western powers are also increasing their efforts to identify and freeze the assets of Putin's business allies, the, the oligarchs that we've talked about. Whereas the, the broad sanctions have impacted the general public significantly, for example, the ruble has dropped to new record lows in value, um, the more targeted sanctions have begun to upset the oligarchs that control the levers of power in the Russian economy. So one Russian state television host, Vladimir Sol Solovyev, uh, went so far as to rage on camera, which is a huge deal, mm -hmm. <laughs> over what the sanctions would mean for him personally, <laughs> which, by the way, was the, uh, the terrifying loss of access to his two luxury homes in Lake Como, Italy, near the villa of George Clooney. Um, yeah, so he was going to lose his access to Mr. Clooney. I'm sure that is devastating. I totally agree. <laughs> would also be impacted. <laughs> well, I mean, true. <laughs> um, on Sunday, February 27th, billionaire industrialist Oleg Deripaska, who you may have heard of before, maybe, and uh, I think it's Mikhail Friedman, 
who founded Russia's largest private bank, began campaigning for an end to the war on Ukraine. Deripaska is on the U.S. sanctions list. Friedman is on the EU's. And apparently the hardships being endured by the oligarchs currently being targeted by the sanctions is causing those who have yet to be targeted to voice their concerns as well. Roman Abramovich sold his British soccer club. This is a big deal, akin to selling your NFL franchise in the U.S., and vowed that the proceeds would go to all victims of the war in Ukraine. Oleg Tinkov, a banker and entrepreneur, began telling his Instagram followers, that's 634,000 at this point, that innocent people are dying in Ukraine now, every day. This is unthinkable and unacceptable. For Russian oligarchs to be speaking out so bluntly, so boldly against Putin is a huge deal. Many of them owe Putin directly for their wealth and success. And speaking out against him so publicly is a great way to end up losing all lucrative business deals or worse, ending up with a bad case of Novichok poisoning. So, uh, and I think, by the way, there was a new round of sanctions announced on Thursday. So Mm -hmm. I think uh, Abramovich... um, and Tinkov may have been folded up in the that broadened sanction because it targeted over a hundred oligarchs. So it was yeah. huge, and that one was announced by the the EU. Um, so, uh, as with all information revolving around Ukraine, the situation is developing very rapidly. So this this information about who is and who isn't being sanctioned uh, could be uh, could be out of date <laughs> by the time you hear this. Um, so. Uh, double check on who's getting targeted with what yeah. uh, for more accurate information. The point being, it is having obvious and noticeable effects on people right now, which does lead some sort of credence to the idea that sanctions are working. We can at least draw direct lines to how the current swath, the swathe, uh, is already impacting the decision making of the Russian power brokers. When it comes to discussing the effects of sanctions, however, I think there's something that we need to keep in mind. A lot of what we talked about uh, when we were talking about sanctions were how they impacted human rights, how they impacted the population of a uh, uh, of a country and of surrounding countries, how there were unintended ripple effects. And I think we, if we focus on all of those negatives, which don't get me wrong, are in fact negative and bad and we shouldn't strive for, um, we lose sight of the fact or we, we lose sight of the context that we, we have limited levers of power that we can pull to influence another country. It can be sanctions. It can be military action. I am not sure what else we can do. Right. And so... If you are like, if you get hung up on the, well, this has huge negative effects on the population. Well, yes, but so does bombing their cities right. and their their soldiers being killed in combat. Yeah. And if you think that warfare fought with real people and equipment and things that cost ridiculous amounts of money doesn't have a direct impact on the economy of a country, which would also influence prices for those people, you're clearly being intentionally obstinate. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's all tied together. And so we have to weigh that. We have to make that moral moral, uh, calculus. Do um, Do we impact it one way or the other? But no matter how we do it, it's gonna be impacting. And I think we'll see as as we get more effective in developing sanctions and targeting sanctions, we're going to see uh, minimized. That doesn't mean minimal. Right. It just means a smaller impact on individuals. Um, when I think about sanctions, I think of them like the difference between carpet bombing <laughs> and uh, a missile strike. Yeah. Like carpet bombing is going to hit a whole block. Or more. I just don't know how you can separate it and make it specifically targeted without still impacting the individuals in the countries. Because if you have a leader you, that's pissed off, um, who suffers? It's the country. Yeah. That, right. You absolutely can't make it specifically targeted. No. And that's my thing. Like with a with a with a with a predator strike, for example. Like yes, you are 
more focused on your specific target. But we all know, we're very, very aware of the fact that even in the best scenarios where you hit your target, you're impacting a massive amount of people that are immediately around the target and that also depend on the target that was taken out. Yeah. Like there are downstream effects to everything. Do we want to try to minimize them as much as possible or do we just not care and bomb the whole city? Yeah, I think that that's a really good piece of context and that's why this episode isn't really geared around whether or not sanctions are the best option, right? Because no matter what option we take when we have global powers interacting with and influencing and coercing other global powers, there are going to be downstream effects. And I don't know. I mean, I feel confident in saying that um, the three of us is your favorite team of podcast hosts does not have the depth of knowledge to to draw the conclusions about whether sanctions are better or worse than military action Um whether we need to be doing both or neither, what the best way forward might be. Our goal is simply to just kind of help you understand what these are and how they work and how they do impact people. Um, And then to, I guess, present the hope uh, that these more specific, that these designer sanctions policies are kind of bringing to the forefront with their very, very targeted impact, as we're seeing with the Russian oligarchs. We're hoping that going forward, these blanket sanctions like we saw in Iraq and in Haiti don't have to be the way forward, that they can be a tool if we have to use them, maybe, but that we can put pressure on the people who will actually be making the decisions rather than costing bystanders uh, their livelihoods and their lives when we know that their, their dictators don't particularly care about them in the first place. Well, context, man. Yeah. And if you love context as much as we do, there's a great place to find a lot of it. Don't roll your eyes. That was good. I'm not rolling it at all. All I'm laughing. All right. Uh, If you would love more context, you can visit us at firesidebreakdowns.com. You can find every episode of our show. You can find our show notes with all of our resources and our sources, including that awesome list of sanctions that we talked about earlier that is sortable by country, by date. Um, updated very frequently. And then you can also find how you can support us if you love the work that we're doing. You can also find a link to our Patreon account if you'd like to support us in our goal of maybe hiring a professional editor or a social media manager. That would be fantastic. We would love to see you there. Our patrons get great perks. And now I think it's time for some good news. Yes. And we do have some good news directly related to Ukraine. Um, (laughs) Some college students have set up a website to like kind of like Airbnb to allow people around the world to uh, offer up their homes for people fleeing Ukraine. Um, and it's by the same kid. Uh, I say kid. I don't know. He's, he's a youngster. Young, young, a man. young man. Um, A.V. Skiffman. Uh, he also did, if y'all remember during COVID-19, the website for um, tracking COVID cases. If y'all remember, that broke out pretty big in 20, or 2020. Um, mm. So they created this website, and it's in multiple different languages uh, to allow people who need to seek aid to get it properly. And so a lot of people came together to make it work. Um, that website exists and it'll be in the show notes as well. Um, and let me grab the name or this URL specifically so I can tell you guys. Um, it's called Ukraine Take Shelter and it's in multiple different languages. Um, in addition to that, I am a part of a Facebook group called Host a Sister and there are thousands, thousands of women in it and young girls that uh, travel around the world and they are doing the same thing as uh, Ukraine Take Shelter uh, just through this Facebook group. They're offering up their homes and offering to drive people from like borderlands more into uh, Europe to help uh, Ukraine refugees get out. And so it's been very interesting watching everyone offer up their homes and their spaces throughout Europe to Ukraine refugees. And that's been a bit of personal good news for 
myself and seeing it being directly impacted um, on a smaller scale. So check out Ukraine Take Shelter. And if you're a woman, um, check out Host a Sister Facebook group. And um, yeah, you can help offer your home if you have it. Super cool stuff. That was awesome. Uh, we we won't uh, keep you all any longer. Thank you so much. Uh, remember, next week we'll be talking about uh, revisiting uh, fuel prices again because they've changed a little bit uh, and talking about some of the misconceptions, misperceptions, rumors, facts, all that stuff around it. Um, until that point, uh, we thank you very much for joining us and take care of each other.